Welcome to Rich Conversations. It's uh, it's great to be back. It's 2022, and um, I'm very excited for this year. And we have so many great guests coming up. To kick off the new year, our first guest is Vlad Yashin. This is his second time on the show. You can listen or watch his previous episode on data science, Hamburg, Germany, and technology in episode 156 of Rich Conversations. Today, though, our conversation ranges from talking statistical bias and why it's so important today to data collection in the United States versus Germany and Europe. What's the difference between it? It's pretty interesting. To his new hobby of saber fencing. You know, those people with the swords that like are all dressed in white? Like He, he practices that and he shares what he learns from it and, and how it helps him. It's very interesting. Vlad is an awesome guest with great perspective. You can follow him on Instagram at Vlad Yashin. And you can also read his writing on Medium under his name, Vlad Yashin. We have so many great guests coming up starting off 2022. It's really exciting. From people in Chicago to Peru to Nigeria to Kenya to Canada to Colombia to England and many more. Uh, in particular, an episode I'm super excited to talk about is talking with a CRISPR researcher. I feel that CRISPR, this technology, I think in my lifetime, has been the most profound thing to happen. So we'll talk to him and we'll talk what it means for humanity. What what does the future look like? This is pretty wild stuff. Um, uh, another person from Dubai is is one of the most inspiring stories that I've I, I think I've had on the show. He grew up in Nepal and he would go to the dump and find electrical parts, and he taught himself how to eventually build a computer, and he taught himself skills, and now he. Uh, he worked for a company in Dubai, and they, they sponsored him to now live in Dubai. It's an incredible story. So that will be coming up this month as well. Just I'm – we have so many great guests coming up, so that will be exciting to share with you. Um, you can help other people find these awesome conversations by giving this podcast a five-star rating. It would be greatly appreciated. It helps others uh, you know, find it through – the algorithm and things. I've learned so much through these conversations and each one expands my perspective. So it's, it's very enjoyable and enlightening for me. But now, let's get to today's episode with Vlad Yashin. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to Rich Conversations. We have another special episode lined up today because we have Vlad Yashin back on the show from Hamburg, Germany. Welcome back. Uh, hi, Rich. Uh, nice to see you again. Now, why, why don't you reintroduce yourself? You were on episode, I think, like 143 or 146. Uh, you're a data scientist. Why don't you reintroduce yourself for listeners and viewers? Sure. Um, so, um, Basically, I'm 23 years old from Belarus by birth. I'm currently living in Hamburg in Germany. I'm doing my bachelor here in technical economics. And uh, right now I'm doing my um, internship at Avanat, um, a big um, joint venture of Microsoft as a data scientist. 
and yeah i have a lot of hobbies um i've started fencing by the way uh since last time we spoke yeah i see that <clears throat> yeah um amazing sport amazing sport so um yeah that's a brief introduction into who i am okay so while we're on it w- tell me a little bit more about fencing um <clears throat> so uh since last time we spoke my um my biggest hobby let's say uh turned out into my full-time employment at Avanat right now not I mean not full-time employment but <clears throat> I got a job in it uh and I've decided to find um a new hobby just because to empty your mind and to focus on something else other than work or uh, sitting in front of the um, computer and yeah um I've opened YouTube once I guess it was uh Olympia in in Japan and I've seen like uh, a video of a saber fencing and I was like okay. whoa this stuff is cool like I mean, <laughs> this 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 stuff is uh, something about this combat sports and and a lot of a lot of involvement uh, involvement in it so um research couple of fencing clubs uh, in Hamburg we went to the first uh, training and um, invited a friend of mine yeah and since that time since august i guess or yeah end of july august i'm full in it two times a week uh yesterday i was fencing so wonderful so what what do you love most <laughs> about fencing i imagine you have to have pretty great footwork or it helps you with your footwork mm-hmm. exactly um for me the most complicated part is uh all the rules that come okay. into the fencing because um till now i didn't get all the rules because it's very complicated it's about the priority who is attacking who is defending um a lot of footwork as well you have to be very agile in uh in your movements and the most important you have to keep the control of your body and your mind for 100% and if you transport it like you know to the historical times where people were fencing like really fencing like yeah. you know uh so then you understand okay i i will think about my job or some issues with i don't know apartment search or whatever because i'm fencing otherwise like historically like if you you know um go back in the days you would die you cannot think about you have to be fully in control of your body your mind your Uh, saber your weapon like it's the most beautiful part of it because it empties your mind like i've never experienced it before mm. interesting yeah that's something i'm i've definitely been thinking a lot about um it's so healthy for an individual to just like clear your mind whether it's going for a walk or finding whatever activity that it that does it my question for you okay so how did fencing become a sport like and when did when did like society shift between like did fencing exist in the 18th century in France when everybody was carrying around like swords and stuff like what what was that about um yeah so literally uh fencing developed with a time uh as far as i know uh 
since um, uh, the Roman Empire, like yeah. big, big, uh, uh, you know, the, this huge empire where everyone was not fencing, but, you know, fighting with swords and stuff like that. Somehow it developed to the fencing uh, you um, was talking about, like in the France. And later on, it somehow developed to the fencing that we have right now. And for example, yesterday I've learned like insane um, fact about fencing that in Germany, for example, in saber fencing, uh, women were not allowed to fence saber till 1990. So basically, yeah, 30 years ago, they were allowed for the first time to do saber fencing. I mean, um, there is there are another two weapons, a P and one more I forgot. So and um, that's insane. It's like thirty years ago. Yeah. So that's... it's it's wild. So how how do the skills? So you're learning on this particular sword. If someone handed you like, you know, like a saber from the you know the 18th century. Would you be able? Do those skills translate right away? Would you be really good with a sword? Mm, uh, I'm not really sure, but uh, I guess that also all the characteristics of the swords um, has changed really a lot, and there is a big difference between you know like this sport kind of fencing and fencing that we're talking about like in a um, historical way where people like really fighting till the first blood or something like that. Yeah. And I can imagine to fence with it, but you have to understand that there are also rules in a sport fencing that we are learning and they, they're developing continuously. Like, I guess every one year, um, some rules are being canceled, some rules are coming up and you have to be, you have to come up with it. But if we talk about real proper fighting fencing, that's another story because, um, yeah. It's not about rules. It's about your skills and about your empty mind, like really like this cult art of being in the fight right now in this moment. So it's. Wow. That's awesome. Good for you. Good yeah. For you thank you. Doing that. Um, well, why don't we, we're talking about the mind right now. Why don't we talk about this article you wrote on medium on statistical bias uh, I read it, and what, why don't you summarize the essentials of statistical bias and why it's important? Um, yeah, sure. I'll uh, try to do it. So basically, um, that's something I've been uh, curious about recently. Uh, and that's something uh, as for me, I mean, bias is nothing else as a systematic error. Systematic error, uh, if we talk about bias in a statistical way, it's uh, a systematic error or like, you know, tendency uh, during the data collection process or that data processing, um, you know, steps. It can be easily transferred to our everyday life and uh, to the way we think uh, just because it affects our judgments and um, our opinion making. And somehow um, 
I was um, reading about it a lot, um, and I've decided to, you know, to summarize it in a in my article on Medium. Yeah. So if we talk about it, um, about the importance of it, uh, it's definitely how we can be a better human beings and how we can develop ourselves to a better um, to a better to a better humans to be more rational to be more um, precise uh, to be it's also a very important step to avoid discrimination for example to avoid uh, such stuff as i don't know um society polarization for example that's um and yeah that's a small summarization of it something i find i'm very pro rational people people should be critically thinking people uh but it's not necessarily sexy when you talk about it um of course uh i can give you i can give you a small uh small idea why it's important uh i mean in to my mind to for, for everyone so uh there are different types of of uh, statistical bias that can be uh, transferred on a everyday life so basically there are like recall bias confirmation bias selection bias and uh plenty of them um statistics teaches you <clears throat> to do right things and to do things right like if in terms of bias for example when we're talking about it and um it's very important to learn about uncomfortable things to uh ensure that all parties of a conversation are involved into the conversation for example just to ensure that uh the data distribution like ensured let's say yeah also constructive feedback is very important if we're talking about um, bias and um, yeah, I mean, if the biggest example would be, uh, I guess in the U S there is uh, such thing as society polarization. I mean, a lot of people are getting left. A lot of people are getting right. And there is less, way more, less people in the middle that, you know, try to, uh, handle this different opinions out there and uh that's nothing else that a confirmation bias for example if we are talking about um facebook feed yeah uh people like confirmation bias is nothing else as you confirm your beliefs and for people are lazy and people are irrational and for many of them it's way more easy to you know to uh see what they want what 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 they want to see and answer on a question that only support their beliefs and <clears throat> even if it's not true so and that's for example how facebook feed algorithms like uh, on a larger scale developed and let's say because they want to keep you on the platform and keep using it so they can exactly. sell your attention to advertisers. Exactly, exactly. And that's the biggest paradox to my mind. Uh, there's a lot of easy accessible information out there, really a lot. You can Google everything you want. And 
if we get more information, it gets way more difficult to differentiate between real, true or real, false. Yeah. You know, and that's why it's important to learn about such thing as, for example, confirmation bias. And the biggest thing for me, in my personal perspective, that um, impacts the society and its future, also our everyday life, you know, Mm. and um, yeah, it's important to build, for example, um, more uh, like the fuller picture of the outer world. Yeah, that's yeah, I agree. And that's why that's why I have you on. So we can we can like better understand these concepts so we can apply them in our lives, be a better human, be a better contributor to our own communities. And then that with more people doing this, the world becomes a better place. So exactly. why don't why don't we uh dive into some of these biases? Which one should we be most aware about during our like everyday life going about our everyday life which bias should we be most aware about uh to my mind it's selection bias and if we're talking about selection bias it's uh nothing else that people choose the easiest data they can access or they have access to so basically if you want to read something about i don't know the last news hottest topics um, out there for example somewhere in africa you go on your i don't know instagram or um, f- um facebook or whatever you google it but you don't try to get the fuller picture for example using some historical data or the development of uh, different you know such thing as poverty level or i don't know uh, hunger level in in africa to understand is it better right now that it was or is it like going worse so for me uh yeah selection bias is definitely one of the most um most important that we should be aware of so for example oh go ahead for, for for example also um let's take an example uh if i'll ask you like what people think about i don't know joe biden as a president of the united states uh probably everything that will come up to your mind will be people who posted or who you were speaking to on a social media somewhere uh but the the biggest problem with it it's uh unrepresentative it's yeah. something people like between 18 and 30 who are extroverts posting daily on a Facebook or on Instagram or on other social media. You see it, you think about what they think, but there are a lot of people who are 50, 60, 70, 80 that are not included in this um, sampling and in this representation of the whole population. Yeah, that, that That's the biggest problem. You choose the most... The, the easiest accessible data out there without touching, you know, these edge cases, these uh, other specific points that are also important for, 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 for the bigger picture of the population. 
So the selection bias is essentially, it's tempting to just grab the most accessible or like the easiest data. And as an individual, you have to think this is just like one part of the data. Like say, for instance, you Google something, people are most likely looking at the top three things. Are you looking into this other, you know, are you going multiple pages deep to find information? Are you going on like, are you looking at like economic statistics and uh, uh, GDP and just like all these other factors or just like whatever's the the top headline or the most uh, sensational kind of story, the juiciest, the, I don't know. Being aware about that is is a good thing to know, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, in some uh, simple cases, it shouldn't be a big problem, but if we are talking about, you know, society development or some very hot topics, some some political topics or geopolitical topics, that's definitely where you have to think about selection bias and maybe do a bit more research than you should have done, uh, like, without knowing um, that there is such a thing as selection bias. And perhaps hold off on having an opinion until you gather more data. Exactly. Process that. Yeah. Exactly. Not like based on the first three, top three results by Googling my question. So then of the statistical biases, which one do you think we should be most aware of as a society creating the future? Um, there are, as I've mentioned, many of them. To my mind, the biggest can as a, as a challenge for the society can be a confirmation bias. And that's what I was talking about, uh, because people tend to see what they want to see and answer what's a, answer on the questions uh, based on what supports their beliefs and their opinions, their ideas. And that's uh, basically the most important bias that we should be aware of um as i've said the polarization in 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 a society like the the first thing that comes up to my mind every time when i'm thinking about like information bias because people just read and read and read and that's the biggest problem with the algorithm for example in in a facebook or an instagram that they will feed you even more of the stuff you already know and you already like and you confirm it confirm it confirm it that's that's the thing confirmation bias so then um so the algorithm knows what you interact with so if you're interacting with content that is leaning a particular way or has a certain bias the algorithm is going to show you more of that stuff right exactly wow Exactly. And that's why it's so addictive, because you confirm what you know, what you believe, what you think of a specific topic, <clears throat> and you get more and more and more and more. And you're like, it. hey, I'm smart. I'm, I'm the smartest. I'm <laughs> exactly. And that that's also a biggest problem, like not the biggest, but one of biggest challenges to understand or to catch up yourself that, whoa, I'm not smart it's there are a lot of 
different opinions and a lot of different concepts and a lot of different people out there. And somehow it's important, you know, at least to try to get like the fuller picture of of a situation or of, of the subject we're talking about. So how do you think people can uh, kind of like challenge their bias? Not like challenge in this, like the way we think about this demonstrative, like battle or whatever, but just like, how can someone be more open-minded to learning other perspectives or other uh, philosophies mm-hmm. in the world? Um. To my mind, the first thing would be get and give constructive feedback. Uh, the second would be learn about uncomfortable things that and things that don't support your beliefs and don't support something that you already know. Yeah. Um, it's very tough. It's very difficult because on a specific point, you don't want to do it. It's, you know, unwanted action. Like why you have to destroy something that you are comfortable with. Yeah. But it's essential to, to avoid some, not irrationality, but to avoid some bigger issues that can come up without like thinking about, um, confirmation bias so yeah that's that's uh, i guess three like two essential things constructive feedback and learn a bit more about uncomfortable things that are out there that don't support you as a data scientist do you think that people make decisions more by data or emotions like rationality or emotions Mm, I would say uh, people are irrational like 90% of the time and um, me as well and I guess it's pretty crucial to you know to think about to, to just to remind yourself about this irrationality that you are irrational people are emotion driven not data driven like yeah. I mean, there are some of them out there, but like to remind 90% of the people are really emotion driven. And yeah, that's. So you have to have like something. a higher order value system within yourself to understand, okay, exactly. Pull yourself out of the situation emotionally, look at it rationally, look at data, look at be uh, objective about the data you're being presented with and then make a decision that way. Exactly. Uh, as I've mentioned, it shouldn't be like in your everyday life on every step. Uh, but if we're talking about some really big, complex questions or topics, it's very important to to add some personality to your to your judgments somehow provide this uh, mechanism of uh, developing this you know rational thinking process yeah that's um and that's what bias can 
teach you like if you if you read about about it and if you learn about it a bit more in a statistical way mm-hmm. you can easily trans transfer it to your everyday life because bias it's a pretty statistical concept but it can be transferred like literally without any uh, problems on your everyday life as i've mentioned like there are plenty of things also it's a, a big thing i guess in psychology and in all the uh, natural science but basically that's a statistical concept nice so if people want to uh learn more about all these biases you can check out his article it's very in depth i want to take this now into a different direction how can someone use data and statistics to be more creative mm. um basically it's i guess uh the most beautiful part of statistics and all this data uh processes is storytelling and without the storytelling it's just pure numbers pure numbers and uh some i don't know some some data out there but the the, the most important part is a storytelling what you want to do with this data what is your end goal what is you, what do you want to achieve and uh with a storytelling you can make people's let's say narratives like way fuller uh if we're talking about creativity for me it's like you know kind of superpower that's what um differentiates us from i don't know robots or ai and um data and statistics can be used as a as a navigator as a compass as a gps uh let's say um you want to i don't know to write a song or to um to um you know to write a picture on a canvas for example then you can definitely look for some historical data uh for some, to 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 get this deeper knowledge about like some historical cycles of civilization development uh you know recognize some patterns and because like history is in cycles it it, it, it the history repeats and that that's the way you can not predict the future but be able to understand what's going what's going what's coming up next combine it with storytelling and yeah creators can be also data dream let's say in kind of way for for me for example if we're talking about creativity it's also about you know um finding your audience and let's say creators can see the audience in a more magical way than ever before just because you have so much data for example all this uh podcast analytics or youtube analytics or instagram uh, dashboard analytics whatever you can see exactly what kind of people are on your profile what do they like what do they um don't like what kind of posts are the most valuable for them and that's also something that you can you know add to this 
power of storytelling and this creative way of thinking. And that's, yeah, that's how you can use data and statistics to be more creative. I mean, yeah. Awesome. How is data used in machine learning? Mm. Like, can you explain machine learning a little bit more for me? Yeah, sure. Uh, Basically, um, if we're talking about like the steps of machine learning, um, I would say there are four crucial steps in the easiest words. The first one is to find the data. No, like the first one, set a goal, why you need it. Like what is your goal? Because it's like very cost intensive process and, and, and task if we're talking in terms of some, um, you know, business implementations, uh, find your goal. Why do you need it? Why it will help you? Will it increase your revenue or, I don't know, save some money? Define it. Find the data, require data, aggregate, aggregate it if you need it. Like, it's also very difficult part, but to be honest, then when you have this data, <clears throat> you prepare, you clean um, this data because um, the data in the outer world is very dirty per definition. Mm. Like there are some missing values, there are some uh, extremas, you have to clean it. Uh, that's where happens a lot of statistics and math. Then you get this data and build a model with it. You train a model and model is also a, a lot of statistics. Basically, it's just pure statistics and uh, math. Train a model, build a model and deploy the model to the production. And then when you have more data, you build these data pipelines, you feed the data to the model and the model gets better and better and better and better in prediction. That's um, if, yeah, that's, I guess, the easiest way of explaining it. Like, what is machine learning? So you mentioned dirty data and cleaning data. What exactly do you mean by that? Um, let's say, um, like in the data preparation steps, you have, you cannot feed a model with a dirty data. Here, uh, and go a little farther from your mic a little bit. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. They're perfect. Uh, Here, I'll, I'll ask yeah, the question um, again. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned dirty data and cleaning data. What, what do you, exactly do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, when we are talking, talking about dirty data, uh, there are a lot of, for example, missing values. For, let's say you, you are um, filling up the survey for a company. And then there are some unwanted questions you don't want to answer. Then you just skip them, let them empty. For the company, that's missing values that should be cleaned or that should be fulfilled with some statistical concepts of replacing data based on the averages or on the mean values or whatever. And that's how dirty data becomes clean data. And only with the clean data you can feed the model and train the model and um, yeah, build a model because otherwise 
the model will be very biased and will will give you result that you don't want to see definitely like for 100 not in a business uh not in a i mean business environment do you have any recent examples of dirty data you had to clean uh that's a crucial step every time you try to build a machine learning model and i've did it like many times for my personal projects not as a data scientist where i'm working right now because i have pretty specific scope of tasks okay. where what i'm working on and it involves more about data engineering like building pipelines and databases and stuff like that but uh yeah one day i'll build a great machine learning model and deploy it into production for sure nice so so a uh, question i have for you and notice in your article i feel like you might have mentioned it before but like is Nietzsche an influence of yours Nietzsche Sorry? is the philosopher Nietzsche an influence mm -hmm. of yours um that's uh, a good a good question um yes and no okay. uh, uh I, I can explain you um uh when I was an adult um so way younger i guess 14 15 16 years old um for me somehow uh it was interesting to learn about these philosoph uh, philosophical schools of that time okay. different different uh different works of great philosophers out there and i was somehow inspired about this complex and complicated lit literature uh people were writing and uh i would i've read a couple of books of nietzsche like uh and for me as a you know this youthful uh maximalism you know um this idea of a superman inspired me somehow a lot a person or like you know creature uh who lived like beyond any conventional categories including like you know religion human hobbies and stuff like that mm -hmm. and i was like whoa that's inspiring and it was very complicated to read it uh also i'm i'm for example i'm not a i'm non-religious person so uh my parents are religious and my grandparents are very religious but somehow i didn't didn't catch it in my younger age mm -hmm. uh, and yeah i don't believe in god so i'm atheist uh, and that's a good example for example of con confirmation bias like you know i was reading nietzsche and he declines a god as a because he was talking literally that people killed a god and stuff like that yeah and for me like oh interesting like he he um declines the idea of a god or religion as as it is like christianity and yeah i confirmed my not beliefs but what i felt the time so, so you're so you were reading this literature and you're like oh someone who's talking about these other things that i that i like 
um, thought this about God when it was hard to find the proper uh, words. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right now, I'm not really sure. And I didn't didn't read a lot about like philosophy or different philosophical schools um, since a long time. But and I would that's why I've said so yes and no, because yes, it was when I was 15 and no right now because because I know what what is confirmation bias you know <laughs> yeah but you're you're reading Nietzsche at age 15 uh the, as I've mentioned for me it was interesting to read these complicated complicated sentences and you know just reading them four times just to get an idea what the hell are you talking about yeah and I can't imagine if I'll read it right now, I will have to read it like five times more to get more or less the idea of what's happening in there. Explain this idea of the Superman that Nietzsche has. Sorry? Explain this idea of the Superman that Nietzsche has. <sighs> Briefly, what I remember... <clears throat> The idea that people kill the god, I guess Nietzsche was a bit crazy, like per definition crazy, and people kill the god and uh, there is no Christianity as it is. And there is a way, there is a Superman who has like way higher values and way higher standards and things beyond all these, you know, uh, standard categories that normal people think of you know like hobbies and some i don't know sports <clears throat> drinking parties whatever and yeah somehow it reflected in in me more or less but yeah the the, the that the main idea that there is something bigger than than all these what? hobbies and stuff exactly yeah as as the person who just took up a new hobby of fencing Exactly. Yeah, that's 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 uh, that's that's life. I mean, so so who are some like like two other intellectual influences of yours? Um, I would say Walter Lewin. Walter Lewin. Have you ever heard about it? No, I haven't. Okay, uh, it's uh, astrophysicist. Um, I guess he is from Netherlands. I'm not sure. Uh, and for me, if we're talking about him, that's how teaching at the universities or uh, any other organizations should be done in the right way. Like explain such complex topics in physics and in astrophysics in such a childish, very primitive way. So everyone understands, even if you have no idea of a, of, of physics or like you know thermodynamics or whatever that's inspiring that's definitely something that influenced me a lot uh, during my school time and that i i've watched probably all the lectures of him on the internet really in my free yeah yeah give it a look give it a look it's it's wonderful is he still alive um i think so I think so. He doesn't teach anymore, but I guess he is still alive. Wow. 
Nice. And the second one, probably it's also, yeah, uh, a bit, you know, trivial. It's definitely Steve Jobs. Steve and, Jobs, interesting. And he has, um, not as a, yes, m- not as a technical person, but as an indi- individual with um, all this visionary stuff in him. So all his ideas, vision, his way of thinking somehow inspired me. And uh, there are a lot of things that I'm really excited about. Like, for example, once he said uh, that uh, sometimes you have to show people that uh, you have to show them the product because people cannot, they don't know what they want and what they are capable of. And you have to show Mm. them something in order to open their eyes. Whoa, you can do it different. You know, that's how iPhone took took the place and became like one of the most, probably the most popular like phone out there. Yeah. It's, it's, for me, it's impressive. I mean, that's, you, you can be that you can be so visionary and like see the future and do something for for it you know starting very small in his garage somewhere out there in california i guess and like dreaming really big too big i would say mm-hmm. interesting you read any books about him uh not yet not you should yet. pick up uh Right here, we got the Walter Isaacson biography. Sorry? The Walter Isaacson biography right here. Okay. You should check that one out. Walter Isaacson does uh, a lot of good biographies. I have, um, let's see. I got uh, Ben Franklin and oh. uh, Da Vinci and... Um, And Einstein. So Walter Isaacson is like, to me, like the premier biographer of like, just like genius level people. Mm -hmm. So if you do read a a book on Steve Jobs, I would recommend the Walter Isaacson one. I'll definitely give it a try. Steve Isaacson. Walter Isaacson. Oh, oh, yeah. Walter Isaacson. Yeah. About Steve Jobs. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um. So this is something we talked about last episode. I don't know if you've done any research on it, but is there a difference in like data collection in the United States versus Germany? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I did like very small, like 10 minutes research just you know, to find the right words. Okay. And, and the rest will be like from my, from my perspective, from my eyes, how, how I see it and how I feel it. Uh, because I have some American friends in here and I've heard like some stories about like all this, um, you know, um, let's say data privacy topics okay. in the United States. So, <clears throat> um, wait, he's, he's drinking <clears throat> his water. He's getting ready to say something profound. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, if we are talking about um, data collection, 
in the United States and in Germany. Um, I would say that Germany is way more advanced and in general, United uh, European Union, mm-hmm. way more advanced in terms of uh, data privacy, data security, data processing uh, and stuff like that. So basically um, for businesses, um, there are plenty of legal requirements, like very strict, like, you know, cookies policy, uh, secure transactions on all the levels. Like This is a- Europe right now you're talking about? Sorry? This is Europe you're talking about right now? Yeah, yeah, okay. Europe, Europe, exactly. Uh, and very strict laws uh, for data saving, data processing, I mean, um, there is uh, such a thing as GDPR. Uh, It's very popular. I guess everyone in Germany knows about it. Uh, It's uh, general data protection regulation. Uh, Since 2016, uh, it came up. Uh, And basically, there are like, that's the main law about data privacy in Germany. Mm. Uh, there are different um, different concepts of uh, and different states that are in this law, but the main are I've, I've written them. Uh, it's wait uh, yeah, that's um, lawfulness, fairness and transparency, uh, purpose limitation, data minim- minimization, Accuracy, storage limitation, that's the most important part, that you cannot store data for, I don't know, for 100 years of a person. It can be stored like, I I think, not more than 10 years or five years or something, then it should be deleted. And if you don't do this, that's that's bad for you, definitely. Uh, uh, Data security and accountability. That's uh, like the most important state of this law you can read about it i mean of this regulation and if we are talking about germany and german data collection i guess it has to do a lot with uh, because i'm by birth from belarus and uh, my grandparents have seen the word child um like the second world war and all this Nazi regime and um, Stasi, and it's kind of a common topic here in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also something that um, influenced data privacy and data collection in Germany, especially. Uh, yeah. So Stasi is like East, German, um, East Germany secret police that were... You know, um, looking for people and there were some specific agents who were literally tracking people's movement. Okay, this time he went out of his home. This mm-hmm. time he came back. This time he eats. This time he sleeps. This time he, I don't know, reads a newspaper. And I guess in Germany, it was like one agent for per 160 or 66 uh, citizens. In the East really? Germany. Yes, that's that's crazy. And there were, they, that's a horrible number, actually. I mean, the horrible ratio, one to 166. 
So, and there is a very good movie. I really highly recommend you. One of my, not like one of my favorite um, documentary movies, The Life of Others. Amazing. Just so, give it a look, and you, okay. you will. And 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 I guess th- with this movie, you will understand why Germany is so advanced in in terms of data privacy and data security. It gives you really a nice, um, nice overview of what happened in these Stasi times and uh, Nazi regime and 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 stuff like that. And, the, and now, and after that, you understand why it's so strict and so advanced right now in germany so yeah interesting so this is also an example of using historical data to make new judgments or decisions for the future right exactly exactly uh there are also some statistics to my mind uh that um in a nazi regime uh people um, not people, but you know, Nazi officers and um, uh, other Nazis exploited like private official registers of a people uh, in order to send Jews to concentration camps. So basically, they revealed all the data they had for all the citizens, and just in order to kill a number of people. Hmm. That's it's crazy, and that's also where we are talking about historical data and why it's important and how you can draw some conclusions and you know if you are a creator you you can definitely be way more creative if you know these facts and you know these statistics and and data yeah um i forgot to mention about the united states and for me it's a bit difficult to sum up everything but <clears throat> i would say that in the <clears throat> the united states seems way more concerned with the integrity of data as a commercial asset you know just mm. in business terms yeah uh, while the european union with this um data re- <clears throat> regulations has uh, firmly put individual rights before the interests of any kind of business. Interesting. And that's the biggest differentiation for me. And that's uh, what we were talking about like on the last episode. And yeah, the, the biggest difference in my eyes. I mean, probably there are some of them. So when we're talking about commercial assets, like the data is looked at as commercial assets, mm-hmm. like, thinking um like how far like how far is where where's the where's the line as far as like data goes of I guess too personal or too, I don't know. I guess I know what you mean. So um, in like, let's 
it's the matter of definition, like what is personal data? And personal data is nothing else as your birth date, for example, your name, your sure name, your occupation, like everything that belongs to you and only to you. And it should be only like your something that like that really yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if we take like for the, an example of non-personal data is, I don't know, if you take a humidity sensor uh, connected to the computer and get, you know, send the data from the sensor to, I don't know, to kind of hop somewhere in the cloud, that's non-personal data. That's something that, you know, just sensor and, uh, for example, I'm pretty sure this uh, GDPR regulation is not, um, like, cannot be applied to this kind of non-personal data. But if a company retrieves your data, and that's uh, where we're talking about all these social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever, where you put your personal data, your videos, your face, yeah, your, I don't know, your um, me- messages, that's also your personal data. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely prohibited to track it here. Like, uh, it's so strict with it. Um, but in the United States, it's completely open. Uh, I'm, yeah, yeah, that's, that's where we're talking about commercial assets. Uh, yeah. Somehow, um, a, a good friend of mine uh, told me, like, that really insane. Once you, you are talking about, um, I don't know, some, that you came up with the idea to paint something and you need, like, canvas oils and some brushes uh-huh. 20 minutes later you get perfect advertisement on a facebook that you get brushes canvas and oil like 20 percent sale that's crazy huh that and that's that i almost didn't experience here like in in germany so you don't get it like there have been times where you're having a conversation with somebody without you're not typing it on Instagram or you're saying it. And then all of a sudden an ad shows up somewhere. So, sometimes. Like, Whoa. Sometimes, sometimes uh, it came up, but I tried to, to use, you know, um, secure messengers, like for example, the telegram and there is a, <clears throat> wasn't, I guess a single case where they revealed like, you know, personal data, such as messages or I don't know, some personal information. And yeah, after my university, I'll delete WhatsApp, for example, just because of data privacy. I don't want to get any advertisement or like, I don't want to know that I don't, I don't want to share my data like that I came up with the idea to draw something with a Facebook. I don't want to do it. And for me, it's something that's really like crucial, like it's important, very important. And that's, I guess, the biggest difference. Like there are individual rights here and there's more commercial assets and use in the United States. Interesting. Yeah, thanks for answering that. Um, Something I'm curious about is what what do you think the best airport is in your experience in um, the world? 
I cannot I can tell you that all the airports I've actually I've been traveling a lot recently like what's and, the best air airport you've experienced yeah um I would say in Amsterdam Amsterdam Schiphol I guess I, I still cannot pronounce it because it's pretty complicated Schiphol I guess that's one of the most um beautiful not beautiful yeah one of the most beautiful and well infrastructured airports i've ever seen it's huge it's really immense and i'm really excited about this all these airport management systems you know like about the luggage and and uh, departures arrivals like all these uh, ways of transferring people from a to b from b to c and how they organize it on the, on this scale uh, and for me, for such a big airport, it's very clean and it's very tidy. I've never seen like such a big airport. I've, I've seen smaller airports way more dirty. Uh -huh. And for me, it was impressive, like how much cleaning service was put in there. That's something I was like, whoa, that's, that's cool. <laughs> Yeah. So, so the Amsterdam airport, Amsterdam yeah. airport. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like that would be a, a pretty good one. There's Amsterdam. If you look at also like the history of Amsterdam, uh, it makes a lot of sense because there's so much commerce and so much coming through mm -hmm. that, that hub. So when you're yeah. at airports, you, what do you notice most? Uh, in the airport, for me, in the first place, I've been to Turkey two months ago. And for me, for example, one of the most important things in the airport is uh, our sitting places. Like, you know, some banks where people just can sit and wait for, for, for departure. That's something that a lot in Amsterdam and in, in, a, in Turkey, in Antalya, as well as in um, Istanbul, there are I don't know four banks, five banks for all these ma like massive people, uh, people coming from all the sides. Literally, people are staying like as in I don't know in a in a in a bus or somewhere. <laughs> That's so. You're saying there's you notice like waiting areas and yes, like how much room okay exactly I, space space space, space is, is the most important thing for me and the how i should feel myself comfortable you know just waiting for my plane because uh yeah. somehow i just prefer to set you know pre-deadlines and if i know that i have to be like two hours before the departure in the airport i take like half an hour you no know, like in advance and i want to sit and wait like in a comfortable space. It shouldn't be like, you know, luxury or something. It should be just on a people level, understanding, like comfortable, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. to me the most important part. That's interesting. The last airport I went through was LaGuardia. And mm -hmm. LaGuardia, in my experience, has been a dump. It's been terrible. <laughs> and, and this last time I went, though, they finished the terminal one of the terminals. So they're, they're uh, reconstructing it. And uh, I was visiting my friend in Brooklyn 
And I'm like, oh, I, I went to the new Apple store. And he's like, oh, here in Brooklyn. I'm like, no, LaGuardia. <laughs> it's like it's like an Apple store. Everything is like new and beautiful and like designed very well. And and I notice in airports, too, there's more. Uh, it's like catching up to today's needs as far as outlets, USB ports, charging, Wi-Fi. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that for example, uh, that's one of the most terrible airports I've ever seen. Were in Turkey, there is no internet in there. Can you imagine this? Huh? I mean, there is. Yeah. We are not talking about charges and Wi-Fi and USB supply. You know, some some power supply. No, there is no basic internet. If you want internet, you have to pay, and if you want to pay, you have to find a spot where you can pay. Otherwise, yeah. it's it's not everywhere. There are like I guess in the whole airport, like three spots or four spots where you can pay for the internet, and it's still problematic because you have to have lira, like their currency, to pay. So oh. horrible. Interesting. Hor- I mean, that's something that should be, you know, per definition in the airport, like for communication, for you know, spending some time. <laughs> Like, yeah, everybody spends, so many people spend time on the internet in this digital space. Um, I would imagine you would want to make it easiest for people to still access that while Mm -hmm. they're in your travel hub. Yeah, exactly. And I was traveling alone, for example. Uh, And if I were, would have been with my friend, it wouldn't have been a big problem, but yeah. I was alone and I had like, I have to, I had to wait, I guess, four hours or something. It was okay. horrible. I, I had no books with me. I had nothing. I just was like walking around and there, there were no seating places, like literally okay, just a few that that's really, that's a dump. Interesting. I, I love this. That's, it's one of the things I'm most curious about is hearing people's opinions of airports. Um, Cause I think Why? an airport is a great way. It's a great impression of a region or a city right away um, in all the things that you've mentioned, but also like how they decorate it, what they kind of like showcase uh, like here in Chicago, the design at O'Hare in like the terminals, it's very industrial looking, which is like, um, it goes with the like kind of philosophy of Chicago, like a uh, big city of shoulders. We're like tough, hardworking people, um, like new, like building, we're always building and constructing. And also you have like, uh, there's this like model of a dinosaur with like the field museum and then like all the I've seen it. Yeah. Like there's all these, you're like pushing the local culture within the airport because people are there. So they get an impression of it. Um, Like Copenhagen was a really interesting one to me because it's kind of how I pictured the like folklore and fairy tales and the woods. And there's like all these intricate, like wood carvings and, Mm -hmm. uh, and also, it was it was it yeah Copenhagen. It looks like an IKEA. It looks like IKEA a little bit. All, all, the, all the furniture, everything like makes an impression, and I think it's interesting 
how people, when discussing airports, they have different priorities in their heads. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's definitely incredible to think about how much movement there is in a space, how it's organized and like, how do you, how do you make everything so efficient and uh, appeasable to like 21st century citizens of the world, you know? It's interesting. Exactly. That's um, like the most, I would say the most important part for me, um, <clears throat> how, like, depending on the, on, the, on the size of the airport, how are the processes organized? And for me, for example, that the biggest, like the most impressive thing in Amsterdam was because it's huge international yeah. airport. Huge. <clears throat> And everything was so well designed in terms of the processes like there was no there were no delays like <clears throat> at least on an hour gates and and gates like close to ours luggage arrived on time everything was smooth smoothly and perfect so that's for me that's the biggest the the most important indicator of what airport is about and i feel like maybe this is selection bias or maybe a bias in here but recently i feel like i haven't had to experience or i haven't experienced delays of any sort if anything it's usually early for the flights i've taken or what i've noticed with other when waiting and like looking at the signs and stuff like that i i don't see as many delays as i used to <clears throat> that's what i've seen a lot in 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 turkey that's what i've seen really a lot in turkey like delays yeah a lot just because to my mind the process weren't organized that well and it's also an international airport that combines you know the um eastern part of asia and asia as well like in general yeah. with africa with europe with russia like it's basically in the center between all these four different these continents yeah how the hell there can be no internet or you have to wait like so much time to get on board that's that's for me anti-top two airports on my list are yeah. definitely in Turkey. That's Antalya it. That's, and Istanbul. That's interesting. I feel like our next episode, we should explore the movement of people and how we can use data to better move people around cities and the world. Of course. Sure. Nice. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I have one last question and that's what are you curious about recently? <clears throat> To be honest, uh, I had to work a lot recently and I was traveling a lot recently uh, because I visited my parents in, in Turkey. Uh, and that not that much that I've been curious about. Um, I was thinking about humanity, that humanity is, you know, entering the adulthood that there are way more older people than younger people. And somehow 
that um, I, I came to the conclusion that it will have an enormous, you know, economical, geopolitical influence. Uh, also, you know, um, that we have to give way more birth to to children because otherwise we will die out on a this book i think the biggest threat to america's future is underpopulation underpopulation that the perfect word and uh so this book i'm reading i'm sure listeners and viewers uh will have content on this uh our friend sunshit uh arvind he's going to be on the podcast he's reading this book too and it's basically about like how it's a simple math problem that America needs to have more people. Um, and so like solving these problems, it's, it's like, it's long-term thinking, but it, it needs to be kind of addressed now. And it's, it's a super fascinating book. So I'm right there with you. It's like, yeah, uh, underpopulation. Absolutely. And that was, um, what I've been curious about recently and, you know, all this, um, let's say all this uh, middle class, rich, poor classes, like the, the, the distribution of people like between all these classes. And um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have that much time to spend on researching and reading, but that's something I've been curious about. Recently, and that's something I will definitely, you know, dive deeper into. Yeah. So you see this, you see this issue too. You're looking at these numbers. Of course, of course. I mean, for for me, even in my country, in Belarus, that's a one of the biggest issues uh, that underpopulation is here. It's not something that we've, you know, um, um came up with it's something that's real very real based on numbers mm-hmm. and, and and math and the second point is you know um people are leaving the country as me for example and as many of us people are leaving the country and i guess only in last year we're in belarus nine point we were 9.5 billion people five six years ago almost okay. 10 million people in Belarus, only in last year, over three hundred thousand people immigrated to another countries. Wow, that's a lot. Three hundred thousand people, and that people are immigrated. You know, that are that that's confirmed cases. How many people just yeah. left their houses and pff, gone? Interesting. That's something. That's yeah. That's. Um, humanity uh, is entering the adulthood for sure. And underpopulation is a big topic. Yeah. That's, it sounds like another episode topic. (laughs) Of course. Sure. Awesome. Well, uh, Vlad, it's been great having you on again. I love these conversations. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow Vlad on Instagram at Vlad Yashin. And read his writing on Medium under his name, Vlad Yashin. You can also follow this podcast on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Have a great rest of your day and 
Be aware of the biases that you may have as well. Let's make great decisions.